Now, I wanted to get an article in the paper, and that meant hiring a publicist. And I got a meeting with one of LA's best, Tyler Burnett. I think if you really are considering implementing a flavored ice cream, you should reconsider the entire campaign. So, you disagree? Yeah, I think it's a poor idea. If you heard a, that a frozen yogurt shop uh -huh. in your neighborhood had a poo flavor, you're saying you wouldn't go to check it out? No. There are better ways to get attention. I can come up with five off the top of my head. Okay, I'd like to hear one. Frozen yogurt eating contest. Invite kids from all around the block to come and have a frozen yogurt eating contest. Okay, I would not go to that. Next well, one? You know what you could do? You could fill a bucket full of frozen yogurt and put it on your head and then stand outside of the store with a sign that says, I don't know how to market a business, and see if people come. People could come with little spoons and they could... When I first came today, I had to go to the bathroom mm -hmm. and you lent me your keys. I did. And I saw that you drive a Porsche. I do. Um, don't they say people that drive nice cars maybe have small penises? Who says that? I think that's a known fact. Well, I can assure you that's not a known fact. How can you assure me? Do you, have you seen a lot of penises? Some. Some? Since you're a penis expert, I'm assuming? I'm not a penis expert. What you are you just talking said about? that you're a penis expert. No, I said I've seen a few penises. I think I, think I haven't seen enough penises like you have. I don't to, understand the amount of, that, seeing the amount of penises, how that would have to do well, with I, I would assume you that, having a small penis. Well, you, I just, I just Unfortunately, I Tyler didn't want to take me on as a client, so I opted for a more grassroots approach to get the word out. I don't know if I was like, had an ego or not, but certainly after that, zero ego. Afterwards, I felt very unsuccessful and I was depressed. I'd gone through a breakup. I'd had to move out of my house. I took my business from 20 employees to four. It was crappy. So did you have a lot of money in the bank when you moved over there? It depends like who you compare me to. If like you compare me to like Bill Gates, then heck no. But if you compare me to the average person, yes. So the most important thing really, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you're not, the most important thing is. Yeah, and all through like I was fighting that battle, I was always wondering, is my twin brother fighting this battle? But I was like always too scared to ask him. And basically learning that success is not linear at all. There's all sorts of peaks and valleys. And so it was very tough. You're in your apartment and what happens from there? Well, I take the year off because I'm tired of everything. <laughs> <laughs> Hello there, my name is Doug Smith out of Houston, Texas, originally from West Texas, the town of Lubbock, and I have started a couple of businesses, and so hopefully we'll get to talk about those, and I am 39 years old, although my online dating profiles may or may not have reflected that at one point or another. Did they do older or younger? Well, I've had them younger by a few years at times, but that's the old me. Those days are over. This is the 39-year-old you? This is the 39-year-old me, and I may have to be 39 for a few more years because the big four zero is coming up any day now. Oh, gotcha. Well, congratulations on the almost birthday. Thank you. Any big life changes coming? I'll be getting married in September. That's a big one, right? I would think so. But other than that, I think I'm just going to hold the course, kind of get through this miniature or maybe major recession right now with the coronavirus, and I mean, should be good to go. And so you said Lubbock, Texas, and what's that right outside Houston? Now, Lubbock is in West Texas, up in the Panhandle. And so I grew up on a cotton farm out there. So I come from generations of farmers. And so that's really what I was expected to be, but ended up going a different route for better or worse. It seems to be better, though. 
Well, so what's the biggest city near there? Is it Austin, Texas? No, Amarillo is north of Lubbock by a couple hours and south. You have Midland and Odessa. You think those are big. Those aren't big for my audience. Oh, okay. Okay. Six hours or so north of Austin. How about that? And about five hours west. Of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That helps people. Some people have heard of Austin, Texas. So that explains the accent. Okay. I gotcha. <laughs> the Texas accent. I'm in the Southeast, but I don't think I don't really have much of an accent. And you're an avid listener of the podcast, right? Yes, I've listened to maybe 10 different episodes, and so I definitely have my favorites, and I could even recommend that people listen to certain ones. There was the author of a, she tells you how to write your own books. That was a really good one. Yeah, the author Incubator, that was episode 89. Yeah, that was really good. And then you had Joel Calm on. I'm a big fan of his. I listened to his Bitcoin Bad Crypto podcast. He's great. Yeah, that was 90, in case anyone's wondering, episode 90. I've really enjoyed the episode with the contractors who changed up their pricing to be something like silver, gold, and platinum. That was awesome. That was very entertaining. Was it like a family one? Yes. It was the dad and his daughter, I guess. Yeah, that was episode 161. Yeah, they've all been good, but those are three that really stood out to me. Okay, cool. And if anyone's wondering, I'm just searching my page and I'm like, I already know. Well, right when you say it, I can look. So we didn't plan that in case anyone's wondering. It might have sounded like it, but we did not, I promise. So you said your name's Doug Smith, and so what do you do, and how do you make money? Oh, my goodness. Well, starting at about age 22, I decided that making money was the most important thing in life because I realized that people were miserable in their jobs, and I didn't want to end up being one of them. So I started brainstorming about how to do that, and at the time, real estate investing was really hot. And so I read books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad is one of them. And there's another cool book, Think and Grow Rich. It's an oldie but goodie. I decided that real estate was my fastest way to become financially independent. So I started flipping houses, almost went broke within six months of doing that. So it was not as easy as they had put it out there, right? So did that for a while. And you said that for a while. So you say 22 years old. What year literally was that though? 2002. All right. So yeah, I think everyone knows that. And three. All right. So you did that coming right out of college? Yes. Well, I, out of college, I moved to Houston to work for ExxonMobil as a software developer because I was a management information systems major in college. But so, I mean, I kind of threw that career out the window because I wanted to make more money. I was making like 50000 a year at ExxonMobil and I could see every year would go up by a couple thousand, right? But I really wanted to make a lot of money and I just didn't see that as the path. Right. And so you saw house flipping as a path? Yeah, I mean, kind of mistakenly, but it really all worked out because it got me in the game, right? I quit my job on my 23rd birthday. I was investing part-time until then. And my goal was to become a millionaire by the time I was 25. And that did not happen. It's not always like quite that easy, right? So yeah, I just started flipping houses and I was struggling and then almost went broke, was going to think that I'm going to have to go crawling back to corporate America with basically what would be a hole in my resume. Like, hey, why did you work for ExxonMobil for a year and then quit? I was like, oh, crap. I've like really burned that bridge, right? Four years of college, you get this degree and then one year at ExxonMobil and like, oh, man. So anyway, I felt like I kind of had to like, you know, sink or swim, right? But what almost made me grow broke is I had a bunch of properties that I had bought and that were not selling. And so I was paying the monthly mortgage payment on those. Those were just alligators. They were just eating me alive. And luckily, I ended up selling those a few months later. That was really tough. Because you actually lost money on it. Is that why it's tough? 
it was tough because I was just working my butt off. I was like working 70 hours a week. Supposedly I was going to quit ExxonMobil and have all this independence, right? I really wanted money because I wanted to be free. So I didn't have freedom at all. I didn't have money or freedom. Right. So I was like working my butt off to try to market and sell these properties. I was doing a bunch of open houses. I was trying to sell them on auction. Really in hindsight, I should have just put them on the MLS, gotten a realtor. In. But there were all these other things that I'd been told would be the better way to sell them. In the meantime, I was going broke. And like when I finished college, I wanted to quit at times. I had about $40,000 saved up because I used to sell the answers to the math class. I had that money and then I got another 20000 from ExxonMobil that I'd saved up. So I was like coming into the real estate thing with 60000 But then a few months later, I was down to negative. Basically, all those years of building that up, I'd kind of blown that trying to make more money unsuccessfully. Right. And not to forward too much because we'll come back to this part in the story, but I don't think we even talked about what you do today. So you're still in the real estate business today, just so everyone knows, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like my career has basically been back and forth between the internet business and real estate business. And the internet business is myhousedeals.com, which I created in 2005 because I thought, oh, okay, I could maybe aggregate all these wholesale deals that were out there and put them on in one place and then charge people to view the list. So I had that idea. I was like, oh, I think that would work. Well, I implemented it. It took like eight months to build the website. And I think about five to $8,000, I paid a team out of India to do it. That was a nightmare. And we got it back. And anyways, over a period of a few months, that started cranking out tons of recurring revenue for me. And so once that started happening, I quit flipping houses there for a while. And I was like, okay, I'm going all in on this internet business that aggregates these investment products. Okay. So everyone will see that's eventually where we're going to get to. I mean, even though where it sounds like we're about to get to it right now, but as far as what you do today, that's what you still do, right? Well, I, so I got that going, right? And then I was making a ton of money and I was on pace to make the Inc. 500 list, which top 500 fastest growing companies in America. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Well, let's just stop now because I want to go back. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go back. Because I don't want to ruin the whole story right within the first 10 minutes for everybody. But at least everyone understands, like, even if you're saying it's e-commerce or you're online, you're still involved in real estate today at the end of the day, right? Oh, yes. I buy and sell land now. So I'm very grateful that I got into real estate and had the early struggles because eventually I figured out exactly how to make money in real estate. And it was very different than what I was initially doing. Okay. By very different, that's to you. But to a lot of people, they're like, oh, it sounds kind of the same. It's just land versus actual buildings, if you will. But it's still within the same industry. So again, I just want to make sure everyone understands what we're still doing today. So let's go back. You said 2002, you got started. You started kind of flipping the houses. You had 60K saved up. And then did you lose it in a couple houses, basically? I had six houses. My initial struggle was that I couldn't buy a house because I kept marketing and then they, I buy houses and then they would call me. And then I would always think that they're not a deal because I didn't know how to properly analyze the deal. And then I ended up getting a mentor. He agreed to split some of these deals 50-50 with me if we could actually get one. And we went through all these like printouts of the, all my notes on all these people that had called me. And we identified six of those that could be deals, might turn those into deals. And he got 50% of the profit and I got 50% of the profit. But they were just not selling for a while and eating me up. And finally I sold them, got some money and then started the internet business. So for a couple of years, you did this with your mentor and you just got burnt out working too much and not making enough money? Yeah, basically. I was doing a combination of rehabbing, wholesaling, short sales, subject to lease option. Yes. It was like, you can make good money flipping houses, you know, single family houses. It can be like a whole lot of work. Is it really what happens with the interior and stuff that you don't see? You can see the outside. It looks fine. But if there's foundation issues or something like that, that's going to eat you up basically, right? 
Yeah, but that wasn't really the problem with the business. There's just so many moving pieces. You're dealing with all these different buyers and sellers and title companies and contractors. And if a house has foundation problems, you're going to know that you should know that going into it and you're going to budget that in and make sure you can still make money on the deal. Right. But sometimes even if a contractor or, or the inspector tells you doesn't seem like that big of an issue, then you rip apart the walls and the plumbing's messed up. It sounds like more of the contractors might be the biggest issue with the house flipping. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. Especially if you're like me, you're like, I can't fix anything. And so they can, they pull the wool over my eyes pretty easily. And that's another thing for anybody with your business. Like you really want to have actually done the work that you're managing people to do ideally, right? That way, you know, if they're doing a good or bad job, like I was a former software developer, so I could tell them with the internet business, if they were doing a good or bad job, but with, and so I could manage them properly, but I could not properly manage these contractors. So I was getting screwed a little bit. Yeah. I think a lot of people can understand. So hopefully... That makes sense. And maybe it's the exact opposite with somebody else. Like there's a contractor out there who wants to start some web software, right? But they have no idea how the internet works as far as like developing software for it or whatever. So it's kind of like making sure you understand that realm and not getting in trouble and getting the bed with the wrong people who are going to take advantage of you. So after a couple of years, did you just make at least a little bit of money doing it? I did. So tell us how you rolled from house flipping into your next company. And what was it called again? MyHouseDeals.com. Okay. Again, MyHouseDeals.com. Okay. So everyone can check it out right there. I'm checking it out as we speak. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I started making decent money, like pretty good money flipping houses. And that would have definitely done better than what I was doing at ExxonMobil. Maybe I could have netted a hundred thousand a year or something, but very quickly with the internet business, I was netting about a hundred thousand dollars a month. And so definitely I was going to focus my efforts on that. This is like 2006, seven at this point. Appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon member. Yeah, no problem, man. So what inspired you to become one? There was some content specifically, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy over at uh, Meineke, I was just like, I had to listen to the end of it. So it was, it was a good hook. It is so funny that you said that because one, I literally just got done editing. The guy said the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. I kept thinking that story was so good. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if you thought the same thing, obviously. The guy is, you can just tell he's, he's a grinder, you know, and you want to root for a guy like that. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a Patreon. Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across the podcast a few weeks ago, and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment. And at the amount that you uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling? like a looking for another podcast, and yours popped up. And I was like, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one. And I love how in depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, Meineke guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm in the franchise, okay, right? Perfect. So, well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask. You know, you hold them to numbers. And so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah, you really did start <laughs> yeah. off with. I thought so too. Yeah. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was, and 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 he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon. Too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks, but uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode one sixty five. And real quick, this could mean a lot. So even by listening to the domain, my house deals, were you just taking like lots of lists of pre-foreclosed properties or something like that, that you as an investor would want or other people around the United States would want? Is that the deal? Is that what your website actually did? 
Well, what we did is we aggregated the wholesale deals in any given market. And a wholesale deal is one investor selling directly to another investor. And all these historically have been off market. So you would have had to be really attending your local real estate club a lot to meet these people that had wholesale deals and they need to have to get on their email list or have them call you. It was a very inefficient market. So I thought, hey, maybe there's some money to be made by making this more efficient. And then all these people who don't have access to these deals too will be able to go through the list, call these wholesalers, buy these properties, and they can make a whole bunch of money. Just connecting people. You were just getting out of the flipping game altogether when you saw this potential? Yeah, because I didn't have enough time in the week. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to, because you said you're working like 70 hours plus. It seems like you'd have to stop doing the flipping in order to put all your money into my house deals. You can't do it all. You can only really focus on one business at a time for the most part and being any good at it unless you have partners, which I do nowadays. Like I've got a partner on the land business, and so I'm always touching base with him. I've got a partner who's running my house deals now, so I'm always touching base with him. But so either have one business or maybe you can have multiple if you have partners. Did you know how to set all this up? I think it sounded like you alluded to it. Did you have to hire developers? Like, Tell us kind of step-by-step step how you even start this business. Yeah, so at first, the, the team in India, they were the developers, and then that was not working out at all. So I'm not really a huge fan of outsourcing to another country, especially with such a big time zone difference, a big time difference. Anyway, so I ended up taking that back, and for a couple months, I coded on the website to be able to get it in, in the shape it needed to be in to go live with. I have a twin brother, by the way. So I had my twin brother code on it for a while because his business failed up in Lubbock, and he was down and out for a few months, right? He coded. Then finally, once I started making a lot of money, I just started hiring developers locally, and I built up a development team. Had like three or four developers and had a marketing team, customer support team stuff like that. This is all around 2006, seven, eight. So the real estate market was still somewhat hot, I guess what we're talking about now. Yeah. So like, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, we're just blowing and going. Like we're already making so much money just in Houston and Dallas. Imagine if you multiply that out over the rest of the U.S. Because I think that population of those two cities is like 4% of the U.S. So I'm like doing all this math, right? Oh my gosh, wait until we capture the other 96%. This is going to be huge. Well, right as all that was going and I'm like jacking up my overhead like crazy, these developers are costing 80, 90 grand a year and all these other expensive employees. Right as like, I'm really ramping that up and we're starting to make more and more money, the recession hits. And so that just came in and hit the business like a hurricane. It was unreal. And so that was my first basically experience with business failure and basically learning that success is not linear at all. There's all sorts of peaks and valleys. And so that was very tough. And that was right about when you were 30, right? Yeah, 29, 30. And so I thought I just kind of figured things out. I don't know if I was like had an ego or not, but certainly after that, zero ego. Afterwards, I felt very unsuccessful and I was depressed. I'd gone through a breakup. I'd had to move out of my house. I took my business from 20 employees to four. It was crappy. It was awful. I'd like to come back there, even though you probably don't want to. But if we can slow it down real quick, you starting My House Deals, it sounded like you had bad experience in India, but how long did it take for this thing to start taking off? And how were you able to actually market it? Because I feel like, I don't know, maybe at the time there weren't a lot of databases with these type of deals or were there? Like, just walk us through how to market a website like this. And I want people to check it out. It's called MyHouseDeals.com because even during the pre-interview, I told you, I think it's a beautiful website. So it's definitely worth checking out. Thank you. That's due to the dev team. And we got a UI UX person in-house finally. And so that helped out. But as far as these properties that are listed on the website, it's not like for the most part, we go in and get them from somewhere online or some other list. We have employees hit the phones and establish relationships with the wholesalers in these major metro areas. 
and we create a relationship with them. So every time they have a deal, we have them either post it directly to the website or give it to our employees and then they'll post it. So these were totally off market deals that now we're putting online on market. And so like when we're entering a new market, we'll do a lot of searches for I buy houses, we buy houses, a sell your home fast. And all these people that are coming up in Google, well, those are investors, right? So we call them all and let them know that, hey, you have wholesale deals? And usually the answer is yes. Hey, are you looking for more exposure for your wholesale deals? Yes. Okay. We'll post them for you for free on the website. Anybody can post their deals for free. We only charge for people to view the deals. And really, you can view the deals for free, but there's some limitations, right, with a free account. For getting the wholesale deals, we don't have to advertise. To get members to come, like rehabbers and landlords to come and sign up, we have to advertise. That used to be on Craigslist and the local newspapers when we started. And of course, nowadays, it's all Google and Facebook. We've done a little bit of Bing, but that's the majority of it. You don't do Ask Jeeves anymore? Not anymore. And we cut out Alta Vista as well for those old timers. I don't even know about that. <laughs> this is pretty interesting. I'm glad we slowed down. We had to slow down, Mr. Smith. I mean, this is very curious to me that you actually have people calling these certain markets. So did you go one market at a time? Because this is very cool how you're able to expand one of these internet sites and back in the day with real estate, because it just seems like there are so many now or even maybe back then. Yeah, we did one market at a time. Basically, you call... You get as many wholesale deals as you can on the website. And that at the beginning, that might only be like 30 or something. And then you crank, you turn on your Google ads and your Facebook ads. You start driving traffic there. And this traffic is now able to see, oh, there's deals. And then we continue to be in touch with these wholesalers to get more deals. And so we just kind of use some manual labor initially to build up a market. But eventually all the wholesalers, investors in that market start talking to each other. And it's just common knowledge that they can post their deals for free on my house deals. And so what was your day-to-day -day like when you started this business? At first, it was like really cool because I didn't have any employees for the internet business. And then I started hiring a ton of employees. And my day-to-day -day was like meetings with all of them. And every now and then having to like reprimand or create like a corrective action plan for them and then eventually fire them and then do all these interviews to hire somebody new. I mean, through that process, I learned that I do not like managing employees. I think I'm a good boss, but it just makes me so unhappy. And so you just found that out over those five years? Yeah, I sure did. And that was a very unfortunate discovery because if you really want to grow a business, you're going to need employees. But eventually I learned that, okay, you grow it to a certain point and you bring on a president. Maybe they buy in their part owner and that's what I do now. And they're managing all the employees. Like Alex is the guy running that company and he loves it. So I let him do that. When you were doing it, were you doing any calls at first? I thought it was pretty interesting. You said you were doing the easy stuff at first, like going on Craigslist, putting these deals on Craigslist. Were you specifically calling up some of these people and doing that? Or the people you're hiring, were you training them? Just give us a little bit more insight on getting started with it. In the beginning, I was calling all these wholesalers. I called all these investors I knew that had wholesale deals and I started talking to them and say, hey, do you have any deals? Okay, can we post them? We'll send it over to me. And I would like literally copy and paste their deal from their email to the website and put it in the appropriate fields. To advertise the website for rehabbers and landlords to come and maybe sign up, I had these ads in the newspaper. The ad said something like, 45 plus fixer uppers in Houston, often discounted by 50%, something like that. Call to learn more. They would call me on my cell and I would answer that call at all hours of the day. And then I would say, okay, yeah, well, just give me your email address and I'll put you on the list. I'll get you an account and you'll start getting emails about the deals. And it was very much manual labor, but I really didn't mind that much because there's a certain amount of excitement when you're starting a new business, right? And that compensates for any kind of strenuous effort or just working too much, right? You said you started making 100K net in a month. And how long did that take? It took maybe about a year and a half. It was crazy. 
That is crazy. How much were the memberships? Back at the time, were they like $39 a month, something like that? We've changed up our pricing since then. Now people can prepay for a year. The membership is actually cheaper now, but we do some prepayments. Basically, you just got a shit ton of members or was there other ways for you to make money doing this? Well, that initially, the main way to make money was just getting a shit ton of members, right? And we have other ways now, like we don't just make money off memberships. We promote third-party education products and then we sell leads. So if somebody comes to the website, we say, hey, would you like to be contacted by a mortgage broker or a property management company or so forth? If they say yes, then that's a lead that's generated. We sell this to that other company and they contact them. So different ways. And we have advertising revenue, stuff like that. Cool. So, I mean, I was just doing the math in case anyone was wondering. So it sounded like to get the 100K net income for 40 bucks a month, you need 2,500 members. So I could have probably done that without a calculator, but whatever. Yeah. And those members were always coming and going though. So somebody would retain for a few months. It's like there's a hole in the bucket and that's maybe the problem with a lot of membership websites. So we're always having to fill up the bucket, right? Okay. So we did this well through 2009, we're basically saying, and do we want to jump back there when you seem you had to start doing some firings? Oh, yeah. That was like the low point in my life. I was going to therapy sessions about it, right? Just because several things happened at once. Luckily, I never missed the mortgage payment. I never, because I still had rental property, never got foreclosed on, never went bankrupt, never lost all my money or anything like that. But it basically went for, I was making all this money. My future looked bright to where I was like suddenly losing a bunch of money every month and laying everybody off. And my future looked very bleak. Going back to my childhood, I've even had deals where like I've always been an introvert and kind of shy and quiet and like if I had to go speak in front of the class, I would maybe choke, right? I would like have a panic attack and it was like humiliating, right? So some of that started coming back, I guess, due to my lack of confidence during this crisis. I was kind of, it was like an identity crisis. I guess I'm not successful. I guess I'm a failure, blah, blah. And then so if I had to speak to the team, even it's like I'm having a team meeting with 10 or 15 remaining employees and I'm like choking, right? It's like, oh, what's wrong with Doug? Does he have asthma? It was just so humiliating. And then I moved out of my house to save money. And then it was just like, I didn't even say bye to the neighbors because I was like, I didn't want to have to explain why I'm moving out of my own house. I kept it. I rented it, right? But I moved into this crummy apartment and I felt like such a loser. And so I would listen to, you know, Coldplay. They had that song about the time, Viva La Vida. I now sweep the streets I used to own. That was basically the song of my life at that point. Is this what you would talk to your therapist about? Yeah, well, that and I went through a too much Coldplay. Yeah, it's kind of depressing, right? It is. Yeah. And then so like I would like be driving and I would look in the rearview mirror or and I would see my own expression. It was just I was expressionless. It was like the life was kind of beat out of me. And then I went through a breakup. I was in five year relationships, went through a breakup. It was like, eh. Two thousand eight. I'm so glad that's over with. Was that with your girlfriend then? No, I had a boyfriend at the time. And that's another thing. So, you know, lifelong is like starting in like in my teenage years, I realized that, uh oh, I'm kind of attracted to that person or that person. And that's not what was expected of me by society or the church or anything like that. And so that's a battle I've had to fight ever since then is just my own sexuality or identity. And do I put a label on myself or not? And which I don't really, but, and I always kind of hid the, that kind of stuff in my business life. But now I've really reached a point in my life where my give a shitter is broken as far as like, I don't really care if anybody has a negative opinion of me, as long as I'm being like a good, honest, ethical person and I'm treating people right. And they want to maybe not like me for some other reason, then I don't necessarily need them in my life. But honestly, that's not been a problem. It really is not. Were you super religious or still are? I was in college like big time. I was going to worship service like three times a week. And I think it was because I was trying to like kill the inner demon, right? Or kind of, I was fighting this inner battle, right? 
I can imagine. That's what I'm saying. It's like having to deal with that. I guess maybe later the business disaster, but if it's like feels like two separate lives of what you're trying to figure out with your life. Yeah, and all through like I was fighting that battle, I was always wondering, is my twin brother fighting this battle? But I was like always too scared to ask him. Turns out he was not fighting this battle at all, and he's done very well with the ladies. <laughs> That's good to hear. We'll have to have him on the next episode. He's a successful business as well right now. Okay. Well, yeah, maybe we can get, is his name Doug Smith too? No, Trent Smith. <laughs> it's Frank Smith? Trent. Parents went very generic there, Doug and Frank. They were not the most creative. <laughs> right. I can tell you that. I mean, my real first name is John. I know John Smith. They just always <laughs> called me Doug. And so that makes it easier. At least Doug, uh, John Smith. Hey, I'm very pleased with Doug after learning that he could have just called me John. So. So we're up in the 2008, 2009. So this was kind of the lowest point of your life, you're saying? Yeah, actually it was. Yeah. The only good thing that I'm thinking of, I mean, I don't know how much you personally invested in real estate because again, your website wasn't actually you were buying the real estate. You were the transaction making money off of it, right? So at least you didn't have your money tied up in a ton of assets that were a lot of people got screwed on. Now, when I, with my investing, I was mostly flipping, but I kept some rentals. And so those rentals that I did have, like some of them lost half their value because I would have been able to sell them to an FHA buyer, but those FHA loans went away during the crisis. But I just kept them as rentals until the market kind of came back and sold them. I never really got taken to the cleaners on my real estate deals. I mean, if they go in half, right, that's a lot. So, but it sounds like at least most of your money was coming from a different source other than just buying and flipping where if you did, were just doing flipping at the time, it seems like you'd been a lot more screwed versus you having the main business, my house deals. Does that make sense or no? Yeah, but my house deals was the revenues were dropping so quickly and I was bleeding money so fast. I went from like making a hundred grand a month to losing 25 grand a month for a while, then 50 grand a month. I was like, Jeez. yes, it went downhill fast. Oh, yeah, because you said your overhead yeah. got really high. That's what I was wondering. I wouldn't have thought that I could understand your revenue going way down, but I didn't think it'd be in the negative, to be honest. Oh, yeah, definitely. It went negative fast. It went from big time positive to big time negative. And so I started having to lay off all these people. First, I laid off kind of like the so-so employees, and eventually I had to lay off all my favorite employees. And so it's just real depressing. You're in your apartment, and what happens from there? Well, I take the year off because I'm tired of everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. So I finally like laid off enough people to stabilize my house deals, right? And the revenue was stable, right? And I was like, screw this. I'm going to go play disc golf for a year. And so in 2011, I played disc golf. <laughs> Big year. <laughs> you know what? That's my favorite year. Looking back, it was great. Yeah. So did you just do that in disc golf courses of Texas or did you travel the world and do that? No, I did it in the Houston area. So played every course here. It was like 35 or something courses and played many of them multiple times. Still worked like 15 hours a week, but that's very manageable, 15 hours a week. And so with that amount of time, I was able to actually make some tweaks to my house deals and our advertising to get that company to start making money again. So 2012 and 13, it was back to like netting around a million a year. In 2012, 13 and 14, I basically, I was back. So I couldn't believe it, honestly. I'd never thought I would be able to come back from how low I was. I thought about even like pulling the plug on my house deals, but it was freaking awesome. It felt so good. But when it came back, I was always like very skeptical of the success. Like, ah, oh, it's going to go away. Like I'd been burned, right? You alluded to that earlier. So because like, even if you did have an ego before, which it doesn't sound like you did, but you were saying, even if you did, uh, 2009 kind of took that away from you. Totally. And it's still gone. I would hope it's gone. If it returns, I would hope someone beats it out of me because you always have to remain vigilant about what's going on. Nothing is permanent, right? So you could be the most successful person in the world, but you never know what's around the corner. 
maybe you'll even remain like financially successful, but you never know what's coming up with, oh, maybe your own health or, oh, I, you know, I go to the doctor and it turns out, oh, it turns out I have cancer. Okay. Life is just always going to send something your way and you just have to learn how to deal with it and roll with it. Never do I feel now that I'm just set like, oh yeah, I'm just on easy street. I'm coasting. Everything's good now. I don't feel that way anymore. Yeah. Well, you probably just always have a perspective where you're more thankful of it, you know, when it's doing well, I would imagine. So like you said 2012 through 2014, things are great. I guess you're almost in your mid thirties at this point, right? Yes. I'm writing it down. So unless I'm really bad at math, 2012, you've been 32 years old. Yeah. 32, 33. I'm building up my house deals again. It's going well. At the same time, I start buying houses again. So in my career, I've bought about a hundred houses. The first 50 or so was in, like in my early days. And then this next batch of 50 or so was kind of at the same time that I'm building up my house deals again. But I did it through a partner. The partner and I had an agreement where he gets paid each time he does a deal for me because I had all this money that my house deals was kicking off. And then I funneled it into buying houses for cash and selling them on owner financing. So I decided that I like that a lot better than rentals. Basically, I kind of got those two things going. And then I started building up my house deals and had all these employees again, right? I was reminded of, oh, yeah, having a bunch of employees actually makes me miserable. Yeah, I kind of remember that from a few years ago. So I was like, well, how the hell do I get out of it like this, right? And then, so that's when I approached a person that was my best employee. His name was Alex. And I said, hey, would you like to work out a deal where you're the president, you buy into the company, you get part ownership and all this, and you run my house deals now? And we worked out a deal and he did that. I mean, I don't know if you've got... Maybe I'm talking too much. Do you have any questions about that? <laughs> no, no. I'm trying not to cut in too much because I wanted to see if you're willing to tell us like how that type of structure works for anyone who's wondering, like if they want to do the same thing, because I imagine a lot of business owners listening right now, if they have a successful one, maybe they want to get out of it and give it to a good employee. Like how did you kind of structure that? Yeah, well, you have to pay them like a really high salary, okay? So basically, you have to like kind of Google like, you know, COO or CEO or president salary and then kind of like for a business of your size. And then you're going to have to give them like 401k and healthcare benefits, right? And then you're going to have to give them a bonus based on whatever the profits were certain years. So oh, you're going to get X percent of the profits for that certain year. That's basically the way to structure it. If anybody wants to learn more about that, they can certainly contact me. I can give my email address now or later, whatever. Why don't we do both if you want to give it now? Yeah, Doug at HawthorneFunds.com. That's H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E, funds.com. Okay, yeah, because that's interesting. So thank you for telling us how someone would do that. Again, just looking at how big your company is, trying to figure out what's a good salary and then giving them a percentage of the profits. And then that percentage of the profits, do you still like own 100% of the company or does like a part of that go into him buying out the company? Well, he owns part of the company now. So he bought into it. And so he gets some money from that, but a lot more of his money is probably comes from this huge salary and these benefits and these bonuses. And then when he sells the company, if we do sell the company someday, he'll get a big chunk of the sale. But it's been very much worthwhile for me, right? Because that gives me my sanity because he's probably working 50 hours a week on that company. And that company has anywhere between like 22 and 35 employees at any given time, depending on what's happening. And so I couldn't imagine having to manage all that, plus oversee all the land stuff I'm doing and just my life, right? That's too much. Yeah. And so I guess you alluded to the land stuff is underneath the Hawthorne Funds Company. Yes. And so I'm fully devoted to that now. Like I spend maybe four hours a week on myhousedeals.com now, which also part of that company, by the way, is privatemoneygoldmine.com. That's another one. And I spend, I don't know, 40, 50 hours a week on the land stuff that running the private equity fund pertaining to that. Cause it's not just my money. It's I pull people's money together for that. Okay. I guess that was in 2014 when you sold that, gave it to the partner basically. 
Yes. 2014 and 15. It took six to eight months to iron out that agreement and get him in place. And by partner, you don't mean your partner in life, right? No, that's separate. <laughs> Clarifying. So right then, is that when he started doing the Hawthorne Fund stuff or like what did he do from there? I started buying land on that time. But really what I did at that time, so Alex became the president, I arranged my affairs in the U.S. and moved to Spain for a year. So I spent 2016 in Spain mostly and then at the end, Chile, Santiago. Was that another year off playing disc golf in Spain or what? Yeah, basically, you know what? People don't tell you this, but every now and then, it's a really good like life tip. You need to take a year off. <laughs> good. I like it. <laughs> I'm due for another one, I think. Oh, yeah. You do that. So what did you learn while you're in Spain? Were you doing just a little bit of business at all or what? Well, I thought I was going to spend like two months learning Spanish and then 10 months traveling. Instead, it was the entire time I was learning Spanish because I have one of those hard adult brains. Unfortunately, there's a lot of us and learning a second language as an adult is just quite the challenge. So you don't realize how many words and phrases there are and conjugations. And so like I basically was in class all the time over there and then I was making friends, I was traveling and I was working 20 hours a week or so for my laptop on buying and selling land and then touching base with Alex regarding my house deals. So did you have a lot of money in the bank when you moved over there? Yeah, it depends like who you compare me to. If like you compare me to like Bill Gates and heck no. But if you compare me to the average person, yes. I've been like financially free since the recovery, since like 2012 and 13, I started making all that money again from my house deals. And basically ever since then, I for sure don't have to work unless I like really screw things up. When you moved over there, were you saying like you had multiple millions in the bank? Few million, yes. Uh huh. Okay. Again, I guess that helps to make it a little bit easier to take a year off though, right? Yeah. <laughs> I could just live off interest. I agree. You're smart enough to understand that. I definitely agree with that. But I'm just making sure that other people, if they're listening, they like the idea of taking the year off. But it's make sure you have some money in the bank before you do that, right? Yeah, basically, my idea has always been, or at least since my early 20s, like I want to make as much money as possible. And that way, I just like don't have to work if I don't want to work. Oddly enough, like, so I don't have to work anymore, but I work my ass off. This last year with, you know, the fund and the land stuff, I swear I was working like 56 hours a week. I still work all the time, but I don't have to. I could shut it all down. I like the freedom, I guess, of knowing I could shut it all down. I don't want to feel like I'm obligated to make money or otherwise my whole life falls apart. It sounds like what you're good at is like keeping your overhead low personally. And maybe you learned that from your business too, uh, once upon a time. No, I'm horrible with that. My, I spend like a drunken state. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would have learned. I did learn. I learned in the recession, right? I got my personal expenses probably down to like 40 grand a year. But I think right now they're like at 120 or 130 a year. But I'm still able to handle that with the money, all the money that's coming in. Like we're selling 500,000 to a million dollars worth of land a month. My personal overhead is not factor into a large degree of, it's not really going to sway my finances too much either way. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It might sound like a lot compared to what you had before, but percentage-wise, it seems like a lot happens to a lot of people. They start having personal success. Let's say they're making literally a million dollars a year. Their overhead might go to 900K a year. You know what I'm saying? It's what I've heard before. Is like, again, there's all these different things you have to do to make sure you're successful. So it's like, even though you're saying it's 120, that's still comparison of what you make per year. It's nothing, right? Yeah, I mean... I like to spend like as little as possible as a percentage compared to my income. During the, my ExxonMobil days, I swear I was spending 15 grand a year to live because I wouldn't run my AC. And this is in Houston. It's like a swamp, right? I just run these little fans. I would eat off the dollar menu 
at McDonald's. So every meal cost me $2 and 14 cents. Cause I would get the hot and spicy McChicken sandwich and a cup of water. I knew I was making like 50 something a year and I wanted to spend way under that. So I was willing to do whatever I had to do to keep my expenses low. And so if I got in a situation like that again, I would definitely dramatically reduce my expenses. Okay. And so after we go to Spain and Chile, did we come back to Houston? Is that the deal? Yeah, basically. And that was awesome. It's like so cool to go over and like spend a year in Europe and South America and learn Spanish. I made all these friends. Oh my gosh, that was great. And I still, I'm still in touch with them all. And I still spend about a month out of every year in Spain. I'll just work for my laptop while I'm there and visit with my friends. So I come back and like, I've got this like new energy with this land stuff. It's really starting to blow up and I'm using my capital to buy the land plus bank loans. And then I realized that that combination was not going to be sufficient to do the amount of deals that we wanted to do. And so then I started taking on other investor money. And so I created Hawthorne Funds. That's basically has been all consuming for like a couple of years. Just blowing that up. Because we're trying to become one of the largest land buyers and sellers in the state. And we'll be there pretty soon. But it's like this huge, big, it's a massive undertaking. I've got a couple employees on my side that are handling the private equity fund. And then my business partner, he's got like 20 employees under him buying and selling land. It's just like this huge, there's so many moving pieces to this. When you left your friends in Chile, were any of them, did you come back with any partners? Because I know you said you're getting married here sometime soon. No, I met someone in 2018 just on a business trip. And so I opened up a dating app and it was crazy. You know, people use those dating apps for like hookups. I was at the point where like, no, that's not how I use the dating apps. I was like trying to actually go on dates and meet someone and I finally did. And it's been freaking awesome. It's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. When you're coming back, that's around the same time, right? So you met him about the same time you came back to Houston? I came back to Houston like at the end of 16. So I had like a year and a half, I guess, before meeting him, just being back in Houston. And this is pretty common with most people too, by the way. It's like if they're single, they're depressed. Okay. And a lot of people don't want to admit it, but then they'll try to like latch onto the next relationship, even if it's no good. One of the coolest things that happened to me during my time in Spain is I learned how to be single and happy. That was like a huge accomplishment for me. And so it was a good reset. So I didn't feel like I needed to be with someone, but I definitely was open to the possibility of being with the right person. It's a good place to be in. I guess this whole time when you're talking about buying land, can we dive into that a little bit more? Because I'm kind of interested. All the land you're buying is in Texas. So are you just buying up small plots and trying to get bigger plots? Or like, what are you doing when you're looking at buying land and making a land deal? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, we were buying these houses for cash and selling them on owner financing. We basically decided to take that model and move it over to land, like rural land. We experimented at first and that deal worked out very well. And then so we started scaling that. But basically we look for land that's about an hour outside of Houston. And this would work for like most major metro areas. And then we would buy, or we still do, buy several hundred acres at a time. And then we divide that up into 10 acre tracks. We call those ranchettes because it sounds better than parcel or track. So we divide them up and then we put on uh, water wells and we bring in power and we'll do like a driveway, a gate, culvert, like minimal improvements. And then the buyer can come in, they can build a home, they can put on a manufactured home or maybe they ride their horses around out there, right? And get some chickens or that's what we do is we buy a bunch of land, we chop it up, we improve it a little and we sell it to people who want a place in the country. And usually they live in the, here in the big city and they'll go out there on the weekends, and be with their family. They would refer to that like as horizontal land development versus like vertical land development. Have you ever heard that term? I guess it would be horizontal because we're not really building up. Right. Yeah. So all the utilities and stuff, right, that you're putting in the roads and whatnot, 
you have to go get permits to do all that. So that's where your value add is. You're getting that and then just subdividing it again for, I guess you're selling it to builders, the actual parcels for each. And we sell it directly to individuals. Okay. And these are a lot of individuals who cannot get a bank loan because they're not putting all their money in the bank or they're not, they don't have the pay stub, but they've got a business, right? They're usually like small business owners. Maybe they own the auto shop. Maybe they own the landscaping company, whatever. They've got money saved up and money coming in so they can definitely afford this and we sell it to them. Okay. So you sell it to them and then do they have someone come in and build a house for them usually, or do you have anything built on there? Yes. We'll go by like a year or so or more later on these properties and see that they put something there. So they've either built a home either on their own. A lot of these people are like contractors or they've hired somebody or they've brought in a manufactured home, something like that. Just whatever they want to do. We sell on owner financing. So we're the bank at that point and they pay us over 15 years. What type of rates like versus a bank? It's like 10%. Okay. So that's where you make most of your money, right? Is that interest on that? No, not really. We make the money because we'll, we'll buy a lot of this land for, say, 4000 or so an acre, and we'll sell it for, like, say, 14000 an acre. So, like, the margins are huge. That's how we make the money. So, just because we've sold it doesn't mean we've made all of our money yet because we just own the note at that point. We have to go a few months later, we sell the note, and that's when we make more of our money. Oh, you sell the multiple notes? Who do you sell those to? We sell those to companies or wealthy individuals who would like a really good return on their investment long-term. They could get 10 or so percent per year if they just hold these notes, or if they borrow against the notes, they can leverage that up to like 15 to 20% annual return. So everyone's again on the same page. First way you make money with Hawthorne funds is getting a good deal on the land. If it's 4,000 bucks an acre, you're selling at 14,000 bucks an acre. Obviously, everyone can see you're making 10000 bucks an acre right there. So, right? That's the first way you make it? Yes. And then you got to put in some infrastructure. So, that's going to cost you some money. But the second way you make money is actually the note, the percentage of interest that you're making on that, right? Well, yeah, but we're only holding those notes for a few months. So, that's not a big deal. The, the main thing is selling a note. That's what I was going to say. So, maybe it's a couple months, like we said, and then you're actually taking that note. So, this is the third way of making money. You could say it's 2A, 2B. I guess, but you're combining all those notes, like say they're multiple lots, maybe 10 lots or whatever, and then you're selling that to somebody else. So you're making money off that? Yeah, and that's the main way we make money. Okay, so you make even more money from that than you do the actual acreage? Well, I don't know how to explain this. <laughs> we might be all in a deal for like 6000 an acre, right? Let's say we bought it for like, I don't know, 4500 and we put an acre, and we put in 1500 an acre in improvements, so we're in it for six. We'll, we'll turn around and sell it for say 14, right? But we didn't get all that money right there. That was just paperwork that says that we sold it for that because we're not collecting on a note. And only when we sell that note do we get the money. So like for a typical ranchette, let's say we might be all in for 60 grand on a 10 acre ranchette and then sold it for 140 grand to on owner financing. And we sold that note, but maybe we only sold the note for like 130. So the profit is that 130 minus a 60. Okay, gotcha. On that particular deal. But- the reason we're able to sell the land for so much more than we bought it for is because we're buying wholesale and selling retail. That always helps because we're improving it a little bit, right? And then we're selling on owner financing, right? So we're offering financing. Those are the main ways we're able to make so much money. We don't even have to necessarily get a deal on the land. We're converting it from agricultural use to ranchettes. So we can buy all day at ag values of four or 5,000 or whatever an acre and then sell for residential you know, values. Ranchette values, right? Branch ad values, you got it. All right. Okay. So, yeah, that makes sense. 
thank you for walking that step by step so everyone here is on the same page. I guess I don't know where we are in the story if we're just a few years out from today as far as like where you want to take us. Well, we're basically caught up. And then so then basically kind of related to this, we were doing deals with my money and bank lines. And then I had to create a fund. That was a big deal, creating a private equity fund. You end up going to the attorney's office like 20 times, having meetings. It costs like 50, 60 grand. And then you've got a few months where you're reaching out to all your contacts to see if they would like to invest in your fund. I have dozens of like lunches and dinners and stuff like that. Oh, and part of this was cool. Like last year was like the year of the helicopter. One cool way to raise money for the fund was not to say, hey, hey, Bob, I know we haven't talked in five years, but do you want to give me like a hundred (laughs) grand? That didn't go over so well as saying, hey, Bob, it's been a while. I'm going out in a helicopter next weekend. You want to join? Like that works out better. So then I say, while we're out there, I'm going to be telling you about an investment opportunity. You can invest with us in these deals. And then so we did a whole bunch of helicopter tours out there, which was really cool. The way we work together seemingly changed overnight. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's having access to the right resources is essential for adapting your businesses. 2020 has been the year of uncertainty. So how can your business plan for the unexpected? There's so much happening right now. Finding the right talent can be time consuming, frustrating, and expensive. Fiverr's online marketplace connects businesses with freelancers, offering hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. What I like about Fiverr is just how quick the turnaround is on any project. When I pay for a project, it's typically done in less than 24 hours. You know, whether you're launching your first business, scaling your current business, or need of extra support to complete that project, Fiverr's global network of on-demand freelance talent is here to help. Find what you're looking for instantly. It's really easy. I mean, you customize your search by service, deadline, price, seller reviews, and more. And there's no more guessing games. You know exactly what you're paying for up front. No negotiation needed. And there's 24-7 customer service. You know what? There's also a network of quality talent you can count on. Freelancers have worked with some of the most influential brands in the world. Find freelancers that are ready when you are. Fiverr's platform is flexible enough to accommodate and manage the ebb and flow of business. Check out Fiverr, that's com, and receive 10% off your first order by using code MILLIONAIRE. Again, find all the digital services you need in one place at FIVERR.com, code MILLIONAIRE. Again, that's Fiverr.com and use code MILLIONAIRE. So I know this past Friday was your first group call. Did you uh, get the answer you were looking for? Actually, I got a really good answer that led to like more questions. So those are like the best answers. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I try to make sure all of our new members get their questions answered first. Yeah, that was perfect. That was definitely perfect. Yeah, I was like, okay, now I've got to research this and ask my team this. Like it was perfect. Yeah. So you're actually showing them the land from the helicopter perspective? Yeah, it's crazy. Makes sense. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And so, of course, we rent the helicopter. I never want to buy one. Rent the helicopter. I think that costs like 20 grand or something. We had to rent two. One day, we're taking two helicopters out there. 
And so like I'm in one helicopter guide in my group and well, there's a pilot too. And there's another helicopter where Mark is kind of explaining everything to his group. That's my business partner on the land stuff. And we're flying out there and we're touching down on different tracts of land because we own this land kind of all around Houston. And then we're flying over stuff that we sold like a couple of years ago and say, hey, look out there. That's where they put a house there. They put a manufactured home there. They built a barn there. Look at that tractor. See those cows. Once we touch down, we all eat barbecue, like a very Texan thing, right? barbecue and beer, right? Of course, I'm not drinking because I'm trying to be on my A game, right? Then we get on the four-wheelers. Oh, it's crazy. We had like 16 four-wheelers lined up. We all get, or maybe more, get on these four-wheelers and we take a tour of one of these properties and come back. And, you know, next year, like if I do this again, we need to add some stuff like, hey, you can like pet this deer, pet this cow, or, you know, go shoot these clay pigeons or something. We're always looking away to like add some more pizzazz. There's some giraffes on the land, some lions. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, lions are really in right now. Wow. Tigers, I guess. Tigers, tigers. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, this sounds like the hardest thing that you've done is it'd be like annoying as shit to me, to be honest, like trying to create a fund and then do all this stuff. I mean, have this been difficult for you trying to like gather people's money and put it together in order to buy this stuff? I mean, it sounds like it'd be fun and rewarding, but it'd be also like, again, having to do all these meetings and not being able to prove like, hey, what I did necessarily worked. I mean, it sounds like the helicopter thing obviously worked, but was that difficult at all? Yeah, it's the pits. My life has been living hell for like... <laughs> Time for another vacation. I'm yeah. telling you, the last like year or two, like it's been kind of a living hell, but self-inflicted. Like I don't have to do any of this, but something deep down, I have some desire. I don't know if I'm trying to prove to my dad that, hey, I am somebody because he never thought I would amount to much because I wasn't good with like farm stuff. <laughs> I couldn't drive a tractor. I don't know what it is, but I'm like, I've got this inner drive to like always push forward. And sometimes it annoys the living crap out of me. I just need to be able to chill more. It seems and enjoy life. So I'm an introvert as well. I took a test. I'm like on the introvert extrovert scale. I'm a way introvert. I'm a software developer. Your brother must've took that test. Cause I don't believe you. Well, I can get to talking. So I think we can tell. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm doing all this sales stuff too. Like when you're meeting with an investor, it's a sales, it's a sales lunch or dinner, right? You're trying to guide them through the process to get your desired outcome, which is like totally honest and ethical too, because the desired outcome is they're going to invest with me and they're going to make a lot of money. It's really in their best interest because I feel that strongly in this fund. People are getting an incredible double digit return on their money every year. They definitely don't need to have their money in the stock market is my opinion, which we saw that recently. We saw why, right? Whereas my investors are doing fine, but you're right. It was a living hell and it's very rewarding, you know, just to look back and see what I was able to build up because I had to raise like $5 million. And so I did that. And then next time I'll be able to raise a lot more because I'll show the track record. Right. But it was tough. Before we started, you said you had some notes written down. I want to make sure that we touched on everything to hopefully help all the entrepreneurs who are listening. So were you able to touch on everything throughout your story? Not really, as far as like, I want to just do as much as I can to like help people on this call. And we talked a lot about my story and hopefully some of that helps somebody. I've got other, you know, tips I could like rattle off. That's what I'm saying. Now we got some time here at the end. If you think you want to just hit some tips and then we can talk about them. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. So the most important thing, really, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you're not, the most important thing is really at this point, just to get in the game. Is it tip number one from Doug? If you want to get, okay, there you go. I've got a few, they all seem like number one to me. (laughs) All right, yeah, you're right. Number one A, number one A. Yeah, there you go. Just get in the game. Like, if you like hate your job or whatever and just don't see a way out, you need to start thinking about, and you might already have an idea of what you want to do, and you need to start surrounding yourself with the part-time hours that you do have with people who are doing something like that. And that could even be like some sort of networking group, which is hard to come by these days. 
Well, other than now, I have a Facebook group, Doug, which you just joined, right? So they can join our Facebook group to hopefully connect with other entrepreneurs. Yeah, exactly. That's so important. Get in the game. And then what you need to start doing, you need to learn. And then you need to create a plan based on what you learned. And then you need to execute that plan and learn from it, right? And then you're just going to repeat. So that's all tip 1A for Doug Smith? Yeah, it's just all, yes, exactly. Everything's going to be 1A here. Well, I was going to go 1A, 1B, 1C. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. So basically, if I had to summarize this, you're basically telling them stop being a pussy. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I mean, just get in the game and don't just talk about it. Just do something. Exactly. And it sucks. I was like so nervous walking into my first real estate meeting because I was 22 and everybody in there was in their 40s. And I felt like they were like so much more successful than me. They knew more. And then it came around to like introduce myself to the group. I could barely even get my name out. It was just like so intimidating. And I've had so many experiences like that through my life, but you got to just plow through that discomfort. In fact, if something is uncomfortable for you, it's probably what you need to be doing. You know, it really is because that's a growth moment opportunity. So just get in the game and then execute on those other steps that you're talking about. Just learn. And okay, so what's one B? Well, one was like one A might be like get in the game. One B like learn, create a plan, execute it and repeat. One C might be like none of us can accomplish big things. Like all this stuff that I've accomplished is impossible. It's too much to bite off. But what you can do is you can take one little step every day towards that, right? Or take, hell, take a few steps. You can take these little steps. So just focus on what you can do, okay? Can you give us examples of that, like how you did that with your story? Well, an example would be like at the beginning, I didn't know anything about real estate, right? Well, my to-do list for that day might be listen to, about the time, it was like listen to CD number five for this like short sale course, right? Or call these two investors who I met at the local real estate meeting and introduce myself and see how we might be able to work together. It's all these little steps, you know? And that applies for any aspect of your life. Like let's say you're way overweight and you want to get in shape. Well, your to-do item for that day could be like do X number of push-ups, do X number of sit-ups, drink this veggie shake. It's all just little steps and you look up one day and you're almost 40 years old like me and you've accomplished quite a few things. It's crazy. All right. So now we're on the 1D or 1E, I forget. I don't know. It's 1D. Yeah, let's say 1D. You need a, a daily to-do list. Like, I don't know how some people are just like, they're flying by the seat of their pants. You're going to get pulled in all sorts of different directions. You need to have a to-do list that you ideally created at least the day before. And your top one, two, three items to execute for that day need to be like in bold up top. And a lot of people do the handwritten list. I know you do that, Austin. That's cool. I, I've got like an old school like notepad I use. Whatever your system is, you need a to-do list. You need to keep it organized. You need to follow it. It sounds like, yeah, you're good at this. So do you write down like all the things you got to get done and then do you reorganize it in sequence or like just tell us how you do your to-do list? Because again, I think it's smart to write stuff down because it, you get a sense of accomplishment from knocking it out. It's like, at least I did one thing. It's getting that snowball rolling, kind of like you said in the beginning, versus if you don't write anything down to get it out of your head and do something, then you're just going to feel like you haven't done shit and it's snowballed the worst way. So you want to do snowball the right way. You're exactly right. When you do your to-do list, do you do it any differently? Do you just write down what you got to get done every day or like how do you do yours? Yeah, I do mine in a way that everybody would make fun of basically. It used to be a notepad on Windows, but now it's a Google Doc. And so every day I've got listed out like, you know, for the next few months, like what I'm doing. There's certain day, things I do every day, which is like handle my email, study my Spanish flashcards or, you know, do a certain number of push-ups, right? And then I add tons of stuff on top of that. And whatever I don't, can't accomplish for today, I do a big cut and paste and move it to tomorrow or I spread it out over the next few days, basically. 
And then eventually, if you don't keep doing something, do you just get it off that? I guess I'm not making fun of you. I think it's good. It sounds like this is one of the things you're really good at, to be honest, that people don't do, right? You see, I think these little tactics sometimes get overlooked on what can actually help people make them successful. Yeah, you're right. I have an extra, a secondary Google Doc, and it has all the extra to-do items that I either want to do, but I've not even found a place on my calendar for them yet, or like they kept being carried over for like days or weeks. I finally just move them over to that one. And then I have a note in my primary calendar that if I'm out of things to do for a certain day, that I need to reference that other document to pull from there. Because if I have just like 80 or 100 to-do items, like in my main to-do list for the day, I'm going to be so overwhelmed. I would say so. Yeah, <laughs> I get overwhelmed. I happened. get overwhelmed with eight. <laughs> yeah, I constantly feel overwhelmed with the things I'm supposed to do, and because I'm, I'm only able to do a fraction of them, and it's very disappointing. Yeah, it's all right. I'm not disappointed in you, Doug. <laughs> oh, thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> I can maybe just cancel uh, seeing my therapist if we can just have these calls on a regular basis. Hey, charge a thousand bucks an hour. So let's do it. Deal. <laughs> so now we're on one E, one D with the daily to do list. Yeah, one E, I've already mentioned this one, but if you're scared of something, it's probably what you need to be doing. And you just need to become comfortable with discomfort in order to grow. And so I don't know if I need to go more into that. We can go on to the next one because I already mentioned it. What? Do you mean sexually? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what I thought you were talking about. Is that not what we were talking about? <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> oh, I thought for sure that's what you meant. When I say exactly what, if you're scared of something or... Yeah, if out of your comfort zone, you know, I don't know. I guess it could be applied there as well. I listened to your story, Doug. There's proof. Uh, yeah, right. So the next one, what are we like 1F, something like that? 1F or 1F. Always be honest, ethical, and do what you say you're going to do. Because over time, it pays dividends to have a very good reputation. You can really pull on these contacts. Like, for example, when I had to raise a bunch of money for the fund, right? Well, you know what? I had not been burning bridges for the last 20 years of my business career, right? I'd actually been strengthening them and strengthening these connections. So it was a lot easier to raise money than it otherwise would have been. I was able to get partners in like these different businesses because I had a good reputation of treating them right and treating other people right. And then if you're not treating people right, word gets out. And plus, you know what? Why would you even want to live with yourself if you're being shady in your business dealings or life dealings, right? So it's just a good all around practice that I shouldn't even have to say it, but I just see too much shady or weird stuff that I feel like I have to. Yeah, I agree with you. I see it in the podcast space, like the fake entrepreneur bullshit. And the same thing with real estate stuff. There's like sketchy characters. I mean, this is the big thing. It's so sad, but this is actually what has separated people that I can take seriously and that you can and what makes them successful and not successful. And that's why I know I'm eventually going to get to hopefully around Doug Smith's level. Honestly, it's like if you do what you say you're going to do, how many, there's so many people who say they're going to do something and then don't do it, whether it's like they're supposed to email you something or whatever. What I found time and time again is like the people who actually do what they say they're going to do. I mean, those end up being the successful people. And that is sad, but it's true. Like that's one of the big things that has made a distinguishment I've noticed on, you know, people I connect with or don't connect with or like people I can count on or don't count on. So, I mean, I just want to reemphasize that because again, I think that's kind of what you started off one F with. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And you know what? Along those lines, you have to be very careful with the things that you say you're going to do. Exactly. If you're going around promising stuff all the time, then you, your to-do list is full of crap that you promise people. So just be very selective with what you promise to do. <laughs> oh, that's exactly why, Doug, I don't promise very much at all. I keep those expectations. The last thing I like say, I'm always thinking about, I'm like, am I going to say I'm going to do that? I almost all the time in my head, I'm like, 
I don't want to commit and say I'm going to do that and don't do that. So I don't say I'm going to do it. I'd rather do the exact opposite. You want to underpromise and overdeliver. Yeah, I guess overpromise. If you overpromise and underdeliver, that's obviously a big issue. You want to do the opposite. Exactly. You have time for a few more tips? I'm all yours, Doug. Okay. We're on one G. I'm writing them down for you, by the way, buddy. Okay, cool. So in my experience, early on in your quest to become financially independent, if that's your goal, you're going to have to give some stuff up. I mean, the reality is, is there's only 24 hours in the day and you're going to spend some of those, a lot of those sleeping, right? So early on in my real estate career, after I quit ExxonMobil, I gave up like contacts with certain kind of like second tier friends or like we were just kind of acquaintances, but they were like always wanting to chat and hang out. <laughs> I quit going to happy hours. I was getting invited to happy, happy hours all the time. I quit, I, instead of sleeping like eight hours a night, I started sleeping six. I cut out vacations. I cut out leisure time. Like, no TV. I turned my TV to face the wall. My life in that regard was kind of crummy, right? I'd cut out all this cool, fun stuff. I quit exercising and all that, which I love to do. Basically, with the idea, right, is that you can go full force with your pursuit for, let's say, a short period of time. It could be a few months. It could be a year or two. And then you get everything in order, get your business set up or whatever you're trying to do. And then you start adding those things back to your life. Then you start getting balanced. But in the beginning, Balance is not necessarily an option or the best route. Yeah, I'll add to this too, if that's all right. Am I allowed to add to your list? Of course. Yeah, I couldn't agree anymore. I mean, I, I just put my input in here on all yours is that you have to give stuff up to be successful. Like what else would you expect business-wise? Like if you want to be a workout warrior, you're going to have to give up other stuff to go to the gym that much more or eat that much better. Same thing with business. I mean, I forget, maybe I've touched on this. And if anyone ever wants to listen, they can go back and listen to episode 69 where my brother interviewed me. But the reason I was successful in commercial real estate when I started, I'd literally wake up at 4.30 a.m. every day. I do that without alarm, which is crazy. I still had alarm, but I was that psyched to go to work because I knew if I got into the office super early, then I was going to be able to outwork everybody. You don't want to do that your whole life. But at some point, like especially getting started, what do you expect? I mean, you only have time or money, really. So it's like I've got more time to put into being like successful at it. I mean, I've worked 12-hour days all the time. The only way I was going to be able to do that and find new investors or whatever when I was trying to find owners to do refinances on real estate, actually, it's what I'm doing on this podcast. Now, I interviewed a lot of guys who were successful in it. And a lot of those guys early on, they kept saying, they're like, you have to outwork people early on if you're going to be successful at it. And again, I just want to reemphasize that on what you're saying. Yeah, you're exactly right. A lot of like, you know, books you read or whatever about financial success, financial freedom, they don't really talk a whole lot about that. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, they don't. And I got that all through like informational interviews with uh, guys who were successful in real estate. They're like, dude, I used to get in at like six or seven in the morning every time. I'm like, well, I'm going to get in earlier, you know, and I liked it. I didn't watch TV. I wasn't watching Tiger documentaries, you know, I was going to bed early and then waking up early because I, I get more stuff done. I feel like I'm three hours easily before anyone else came in. I could be done for the whole day if I wanted, but then I just kept working because I enjoyed it. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of a peaceful time too. If you, Before you even start working, if you want to do some things like write out your gratitude list, do some meditation, do a few exercises, like do some like neuro-linguistic programming where you're chanting to yourself, like I'm going to make today a great day or what, whatever you need to do to kind of get yourself going, right? You can do it at that time as well. All right. So that's one G. What's one H? Is listen to podcasts and audiobooks when you're driving or exercising, brushing your teeth. It's very important. Or taking a dump. This obviously would be a good one to start with, right? Listen to all these other episodes. Yeah. 
Or just listen to this episode on repeat. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. Uh, I is take care of your health over the long term. I would much rather end up with a very moderate, like modest net worth when I'm like in my 70s and be extremely healthy, like I've, after a lifetime of eating properly and exercising, than to be worth tens or hundreds of millions and be totally out of shape and came and hardly walk up the stairs. And I just see that it's way too common in the business world that neglect their health in pursuit of money. And that's not, I don't think that's how you should do it. Yeah. I mean, you should pursue happiness, right? And I think people too much, again, you want to be financially successful so you can have the freedom like you were talking about, but then you don't want it at all costs. And so again, when we were talking about in the beginning, you have to give up stuff to be successful in business, but at some point in life, you want to rebalance, right? Again, trying to reemphasize, it's not all about the money all the time. It's more about being happy. And I think again, being able to be financially free, gives you the opportunity to do other stuff like take years off, right? Because we work so hard and do these other things. So definitely agree with you with the health stuff. I've got an extra pair of dumbbells that luckily I have laying around that I see all the time that I'm not doing it 10 hours a day every day. But you know, from time to time, I'm not just literally sitting down all day. I'll get up just even for a couple of minutes and just move around versus at least just sitting there and eating, you know, KFC, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So we got that one eye. That was one eye. Do we have one J? Jay is a very specific tip and some of these other ones, you know, will be more specific. But so I've recently learned, I don't know what took me so long, but if you're able to get your business to where it grosses $10 million or more per year in gross revenues and is netting at least $2 million per year, you can actually sell that for about 12 times earnings in a lot of cases. Say it's like netting two million a year times twelve is twenty four million. You can sell that business for twenty four million. But if you are grossing or netting like less than that, you can only sell for multiple of like three or four times earnings. Because once you get it big enough, basically, you get it on the eyes or on the radar of private equity firms, and they're willing to pay more. That's kind of like like I have an eye of maybe selling my house deal someday, but we would never do it until we were like at that point for that business, right? To sell for much higher multiple. That's an awesome tip. I've never heard that. It's a Doug special for sure. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I've never heard like what threshold. So are we looking at the net 2 million threshold or the actual like 10 million? Well, you need to do both. You need to have like at least 10 million in revenue and net at least like 2 million, right? Okay. And you'll get a multiple that's like 5X, whatever it would have been if it was like... It's much, you get much better. It's like 12, 12 something instead of like three point something. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause usually I hear about three or four multiple, but yeah, you're saying once you get over those two figures, then that's a big deal. Okay. Yeah. It's a big deal. So you can either do that. You can grow like organically to get to that level, or you can start going out and acquiring companies. So you can like acquire companies for say three or four times earnings and roll them into your company. And then you get your revenues and your profits up to where they need to be. And now you're selling everything for 12 times. So that really works out financially, right? But I've recently learned that through, so I go to those Ryan Dice digital marketer conferences every year in San Diego and like, thousands of people go. If you're in information marketing, you should attend. But Roland Frazier is the guy that speaks there. And I went to his conference. He's bought and sold a bunch of businesses. He, you know, I, I learned that from him. Nice. Well, yeah, we all learn it from somewhere. So I appreciate you passing along the knowledge. Yeah. Okay. Another like really good tip is 1K. You need to, if necessary, pay more and get good employees or people on your team. This is very important. Only going to be as good as your employees. How do you know if they're good? Well, we, of course, do an interview, but we do a lot of testing as well. So like if they're going to be a software developer, we'll give them like some sort of coding test or whatever they're going to do they're going to take tests related to that. Like, okay, even after the interview, hey, type out a paragraph that explains what you learned during the interview. I'm going to look at their grammar. 
stuff like that. I've given some very version of an IQ test before, stuff like that. But then, yeah, so pay more if you need if you need to to get those good people. I used to try to save money by getting like so-so employees and it never worked out. And to, to get a good employee, by the way, you normally need to post to the main job sites and then get dozens or hundreds of applications and have a good process for sifting through those. It's not just like, oh, my friend Joe says that Becky's good, so I'm just going to bring Becky in. That's like the worst possible way to hire an employee. You didn't put them through the right screening or filters. Yeah, I'm trying not to say something every time, but I guess I'm going to again. So I agree with you. With So I do this great on Upwork. So for instance, I'll try to get as many applicants as you can. You want to filter. I mean, that's the idea. You want as many as you can first. I'll say you have to type Ola, H-O-L-A, you know, in their first words in your proposal to me. If you don't do it, that knocks out half the applicants. More. Right. If they can't follow the directions, the simple directions, you do not want to hire them. So just make them say the color green or something random at the very beginning, even though all is not really random, but at least something that if you put in that application, give them two or three things that they have to do very specifically. And if they don't do them, then they can't read directions. You're exactly right. I do the same thing. There's a certain word that they have to include, right? Another thing I do is like they need to solve like some sort of problem in Excel. Like it's like, oh, Bob owns a hundred acres of farmland and he makes this much per acre and then blah, blah, blah. And they like map this out in Excel to tell me what his annual income is or whatever off this farm, you know, for a given year. See how they do on that. All right. Now one L. Your employees are watching you. They are looking at you to determine how they should behave, right? So like if you're rolling into the office at 10 a.m. or whatever, then they're going to start rolling into the office at 10 a.m. If you're never there, then they're never going to be there. If you do shady stuff, then they're they're either going to lose respect for you or they're going to start doing shady stuff. Like there's a tremendous amount of accountability when you get employees is that just remember eyes are always on you. And, And if you want to have a like a solid productive team, then you need to be a solid, productive person yourself. Yeah. And for this, I remember, I forget where I heard this, but it definitely works out. I remember they said like, if your boss, if you say one negative thing to somebody or like your employee is going to remember that way more than you might actually say that. Right. And they'll hold on to that negative thing. So you want to make sure at all times that you're trying to be a positive influence and not doing anything negative. Like you're saying, coming in late, like they're going to notice that. But even if you do something that's shady or something that's shitty or you call out, you know, an employee for being a bad employee in front of other employees, even though you might have accidentally done that and not like meant for it to be a slight, they might take it really, really personally. So it's just, again, making sure that if people are looking at you, we got employees that you're cognizant of it. And hopefully you'd want to do that more in private than in public. Yeah, you're exactly right. You normally just want to criticize in private and non-written manner, it needs to be verbal, probably praise in a written manner that's public to probably the whole company, right? On Slack or whatever tool you're using, Microsoft Teams. Yeah, good point. All right, that was one now. I already said this one, so we don't have to go into it, but it helps a whole lot if you know how to do the work of your employees. So like I used to round up the wholesale deals right for myself so I can tell if somebody's like not doing a good job getting on the phones and talking to investors. Just whatever it is, it helps if you know, if you've had that role yourself. If you run a web business like my house deals, you really need to be split testing everything. Like you have a new order page, we'll split test it against the prior order page. New sales letter, split test it against the other one, whatever. But that's a very specific tip for people with web businesses. But a lot of things in business in general are just a test. You're going to test to see how that works out. If it doesn't, oh well, you know, hopefully you can minimize the damage from it and move on. We're all just like testing and learning, testing and learning. You weren't kidding about this list of tips. I thought we were going to get like five or six. <laughs> I, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Okay. This is one O. Oh, you're going to have to send this list. Like I've, I've been trying to write it down, but you're going to send it to me and I'm going to have a special link for everyone to get it if that's okay. <laughs> right. 
Sounds good. Another thing is business ideas are a dime a dozen. So if you're like one of those people that has an idea and you're not willing to like talk to other people about it, it's probably not in your best interest. It probably is better to talk to other people about it and kind of get their feedback on it and then develop that. And maybe if some people like it, then they can partner with you in some way or maybe provide the capital for it, whatever. Over the years, I've developed a list that was probably 150 business ideas because like maybe once a month, I'll have a different idea, but I'll type it into a Word doc. I'm willing to hand that document to anybody. So like if a listener wants business ideas, okay, well, email me and I'll reply with the list of business ideas. It's like, but I don't value the ideas as much as I used to. I value the execution. And that's what most business owners will tell you. It's all like, can you execute it? And that's the hard part. For sure. Yeah. So the other one is, you know, the law of physics, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. So get in motion in the direction of your goals and adjust as needed. That goes back to kind of 1A, stop being a pussy, right? Yeah, exactly. So even if you get into something that is like ends up being like a bad idea, like you decided you were going to flip mobile home parks or something and you get into that and you're like, oh God, this sucks. Like, I don't like this at all. Well, during that process, you probably met some people or learned some things that you can pivot, right? You started doing something different. Like I started flipping houses and that was like, I didn't like that a whole lot. It was a lot of work. And what did I learn? Oh, I can create a website that aggregates these deals. Once you get in the game, you can adjust, but you need to get in the game. Get in the game. All right. Get in the game. And lastly, this last one, never give up. Oh, wow. And this is one Q. So Q first, quit. <laughs> one P was for pussy, one Q for quit. All right. <laughs> Don't quit. Yeah. There's so much to be said just for persistence. I mean, golly. Every time you get knocked down, you get back up, you're unstoppable. You are absolutely unstoppable. Well, that was quite a list, my friend. <laughs> But I think it was valuable. So I appreciate you you sharing that and taking the time to write it all down. So thank you for not only sharing your story, but I guess all those tips for people. You're welcome. My goal on this call is just to help as many people as possible. So hopefully I've been able to do that. And if there are other ways I might be able to help you, please email me, Doug at HawthorneFunds.com. If you want my list of business ideas or what else. Could we include that on the email as far as like, if you give me a list of all this that we just went over and we put that list at the bottom, or do you want to keep it more confidential than that? What, the list of business ideas? Yeah, I'll add it to the bottom of this list, like Doug Smith's special business ideas. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, just looking to help people. So if that's going to help more people, that's fine. I figure just make it all one document, you know? Yeah. So Doug's, all of his tips to be successful. And then underneath that, we can put their list of ideas if that works. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to, it's all right. Sounds good. Yes, sounds good. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, usually I ask people if they have any words of wisdom, but you've already given us a list of it, I think. Listen to more of your podcast. How about that? Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> it. It really is good. I enjoy it. When I'm at the gym, which I don't do lately, right? Or I, I work out on my Bowflex, but I'm listening to your podcast. It's great. Oh, I appreciate it, Doug. And appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and your tips for all these entrepreneurs. Yeah, you're welcome. So again, if anybody wants to reach me, Doug at HawthorneFunds.com for, I don't know, tips, whatever. And if you're interested in also learning more about my private equity fund, email me as well. And I can include you on the newsletter that I send out every few weeks. And so you can kind of be like a fly on the wall to see what's going on and maybe someday do a lot better than what you have been doing in the stock market or elsewhere. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Austin. So I know what you're thinking right now. How do I get my hands on Dougie Fresh's list of fantastic business ideas and tips for success? I'm reading them right now, and these are actually some pretty good ideas. So, hmm. You know how you can get them? You can join our free Facebook group. And as you join, 
ask for your email address. And if you shoot me your email address, then I'll email you Doug's fantastic business ideas right here and his keys to success. And let's see, I'm looking at our new, what are we doing now for our Patreon for our group calls? Oh, we're doing two a month? Yeah, we are. And the membership price is still the same. Unbelievable. So if you want to become a member and actually stop being a passive pussy, well, join our Patreon membership by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. And again, the price is still the same. I'm not going to keep it this way forever. We're now doing two group calls a month for the price of one. You're welcome.